Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Today we're going to take a look at distance learning now in full flight in most school districts across California. More specifically, we're going to take a look at the often shifting and confusing nature of the county monitoring list for coronavirus infections. That list determines whether schools have to educate students via distance learning. It seems like each week, sometimes each day, that some counties come off the list and others go on the list. We're also going to explore an issue that many adults face during their days full of Zoom meetings, whether to keep their cameras on or off. Some people enjoy looking at one another, while others avoid it whenever they can. This time, the issue pertains to teachers and students, whether cameras should be required to be on during classroom instruction. And on the higher education front, things are looking pretty perilous for colleges that have brought students to live on campus this fall. Check out an article by Ed Source's Larry Gordon about a panel he moderated at the Sacramento Press Club with new UC President Michael Drake and UC Board of Regents Chairperson John Perez. It was one of Drake's first interviews since taking office on August 1, and they warned that UC students could face discipline for participating in gatherings that violate health regulations, although they didn't say what discipline they would face. But let's get to the state's county monitoring list. If a county is on that list, you pretty much will have to offer instruction via distance learning. That is, unless you're able to get a waiver to offer in-person learning for students in kindergarten through only sixth grade, would or offer specialized services for special education students or others like homeless students with really acute needs. As of the end of this week, 34 out of California's 58 counties were on the list. That means that 4.8 million students, or four out of five of public school students in California, will almost certainly begin the school year with distance learning. Those that went on the list were mostly smaller rural counties like Mendocino. And we'll be talking with Michelle Hutchins. She's the county superintendent there. Those coming off the list include San Diego County with over 600,000 students and 42 school districts. We're pleased to have with us Paul Gothold. He's the county superintendent of schools in San Diego. Welcome, superintendent. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Superintendent, your county is about to go off the state monitoring list, which uh, technically would allow districts and charter schools to bring kids back for in-person instruction. What is your sense as to how many districts or charter schools will take advantage of that possibility? So currently we have, I believe, uh, seven of our 42 districts that have agreements in place We have one opening, I believe, as early as next week or scheduled to, provided we remain on the 14-day track to keep cases under 100. We will be eligible the first week of September. And I know of other districts that plan to return the second week of uh, September, others that plan on starting early October. So it really depends on the district. One important delineation that districts are considering as they reopen is that even though the county case rate is less than 100 per 100,000, we still have communities that have significant surges and outbreaks that are well above that threshold. So even within a district that transcends over multiple zip codes, you might have some schools bringing children back sooner than others 
because of the local data and the health conditions surrounding those schools. Just in general, though, do you see this as a plus coming off the list for your county, or is it <laughs> does that remain to be seen? I don't think anyone would disagree. The best place for our kids are on campus. And, and our guidance has been, I believe, very strong and aligned with public health around the conditions for which we come back. We've had success in the summer operating pop-up child care centers. What I would say in general is everyone's in a, in a different place and they're, they're carefully analyzing the health conditions in their respective district and solidifying agreements with their bargaining members about what this looks like when they do come back on campus. I'm wondering whether this is also creating some confusion. I mean, some counties are going off the list, some are going on the list. Is this hard for school districts to plan when you have this shifting landscape? I think the biggest term that we have been exercising with our districts and planning for every contingency is flexibility and, and agility because Things can change on a dime in this environment, and we have to prepare for all aspects of delivering Bible instruction, regardless if it's in-person or at-home instruction. Are districts worried about a yo-yo effect, that they may end up back where they were before and maybe more reluctant to come off of distance learning for a while to see how things happen in the next month or so? Yeah, absolutely. As part of the conversation, I mean, we, we we're, you see schools across the country that have opened that have had to immediately close their doors. We see it in higher education. So we've, we've been cognizant of that. We've been cautious in our approach. And by doing this right, doing this in small cohort of kids, we can prevent some of those things from happening. But again, this is, at the end of the day, these are local decisions made by local boards and superintendents, what they feel is best for their communities. Well, do you think that the, the, all districts will have to survey their parents again because parents' views may have changed in the last month and there may be fewer parents coming back than perhaps surveyed in June? Absolutely. We have recommended that. And not just because of the change in opinion, that this is a fluid situation that seems to change by the day. And in addition to that, we know that every single day there are families that are economically adversely affected as well. Uh, and their conditions around being able to stay home with their children would change. So um, it's a very good point. Uh, it, it's one that we are, we're trying to do thoughtfully and carefully. There are a lot of surveys out there. People have survey fatigue, we know, because we're addressing the digital divide, food insecurity, you name it. But it is an important concept that we have stressed with districts that there has to be a revisiting of these surveys because of the changing conditions that you just articulated. Do most of your districts have agreements in place with the teachers unions with regard to coming back? Because I've seen that the California Teachers Association has expressed real reluctance to come back to school until conditions are safe. And that definition can change as well. Yeah, I think to date, there are about seven, eight uh, agreements in this county that are solidified, signed off about returning to in-person learning and many others to follow. And so it just varies, again, by district to district. Paul, if you had to predict a month from now what schools would look like in your county, what would you envision? Well, it's, it's imperfect at best. Eight to 10 kids, maybe 12 at the most in each class. And really, they're not going to be interfacing with other groups of kids on campuses. That's what we've advised. Cohorts of kids, they eat in their classroom. Recess is different. We're talking about not sharing objects or equipment that's 
surface contamination. And then our safety protocols. I mean, you know, just as an example, our vents and filters get changed out every six months. We're doing that every three weeks. And temperature checks, screening protocols when kids walk into school. And you'll see some teachers both with a mask and and shield so that they can get closer to kids uh, for individual help. Imperfect at best in an imperfect environment. But again, what we've seen by the enforcement and implementation of these protocols in our after-school programs and in our emergency pop-up child care centers, we haven't had incidents, thank God. And, you know, this is what public health has said is going to protect staff and students, and that's what I expect to see in our schools. Well, we've been talking with Paul Gothold, superintendent of schools in San Diego County. Got a huge job on your hands. We wish you all the best of luck and uh, look forward to staying in touch with you in the months ahead. Likewise. Thank you so much. As we mentioned, several counties were placed on the county monitoring list, and that includes Mendocino County, a tiny county compared to San Diego. It has only 12 school districts and about 12,000 students. Pleased to have with us Michelle Hutchins. She's superintendent of schools in Mendocino County. Welcome, Superintendent. Thank you very much for having me today. What do you see as the impact of going back on the list? Because our local public health data indicated that we were heading towards the monitoring list, most schools in our county were preparing for distance learning. So the overall number of schools impacted was minimal. However, for those impacted, it was big. A lack of clarity about whether schools that had opened could stay opened caused a hectic situation, but everyone in our county handled it very well. Well, just explain, I think, because we we actually wrote about this in EdSource, there was at least one school, one public school, and I think a couple of private schools that had opened for in-person learning. And then they had to close. They had to actually sent kids home. Is that is that correct? That's exactly what happened. We had been assured that if a school had opened for in-person instruction and then the state subsequently placed that county on the monitoring list, that the school would be allowed to continue with in-person instruction. However, what happened with us was that we were placed on the monitoring list retroactively as of July 25th on August 17th. Now, wait a minute. That sounds a little bizarre. You were placed on the list retroactively. Did that have to do with that whole screw up with the data? They didn't know how many, what actually was going on in every county? That's exactly what occurred. Our data qualified us for the monitoring list in July, in late July, And our public health officer was communicating to the state that the data the state was reporting was not accurate because our data was much higher, our numbers were much higher. And so I believe she was pretty instrumental in helping the state uncover the data glitch because our numbers were much higher. So on August 17th, we were notified that we were on the monitoring list as of July 25th. Well, how's it been going so far with distance learning after a couple of weeks? Is it better than it was last spring? 
Absolutely. You know, the, for mo- like I said, the majority of our districts were planning distance learning. And so, you know, what I could say or can say is that the distance learning instruction that's being provided this year is superior to what we provided last spring. And the, the unfortunate part is in listening to the San Diego district superintendent talk about how school's going to look in person, you can see that in-person instruction will not be as good as it was pre-COVID. So it's it's really a, it's a balance or a challenge in terms of how to best serve kids. Explain that, if you will. What, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is by having kids have to physically distance six feet apart, wearing masks, they're not able to share materials, they can't do those elbow talks, they have to all face in one direction. When schools are really moving towards much more collaborative methods of instruction, now we have to go back more to that individual instruction, even though it's in person. So we're losing ground in the sense that in order to meet the health and safety requirements, schools are not going to be able to do the more collaborative work that the state and, and we know works in education. We've been talking with Michelle Hutchins, Superintendent of Schools in Mendocino County. Thanks so much for joining us today, and best of luck from the rest of California for your work, which we don't hear about and it's been a privilege to hear about what you're doing. Thank you. Coming up, the pros and cons of whether students should keep their cameras on or off during Zoom meetings. So an interesting and sometimes contentious issue with the return to distance learning is whether to require students to keep their video on or off with Zoom. Our writer, Sydney Johnson, wrote about the issue this week. It's, it's not an easy yes or no answer, depending on which teacher you ask. Some teachers believe it's necessary to keep kids focused and engaged to have the video on, but there are also privacy concerns and an issue of screen fatigue for keeping a kid watching for so long. We're pleased to have on the line with us Josh Weiss, an education technology specialist at Stanford University's Graduate School of Education. He was also a middle school teacher for seven years before that. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Josh. Thank you for having me today. What's your view on this issue, Josh? I mean, it seems to me at the base of it, teachers want good instruction to happen, and they want to know that students are engaged. At any level, that's good learning. Zoom has some advantages in this respect, or any video platform like it, in the sense that you can see if a student is there physically, you can see if their eyes are on the screen. But more and more as we get into this digital learning world, it's obvious that just having eyes on the screen could mean any number of things. So I think we have to unpair this idea of eyes on screen means learning, and maybe dig a little bit more into the why and how of the learning and how Zoom can be a marker of that, but isn't necessarily the end-all and be-all for, yes, learning is happening. Well, many students feel that they don't want to have the camera on and have people see what their home looks like and their room is messy. And and are you sympathetic with the student's point of view? I am. I was a middle school teacher for seven years. I know that the last thing you want to do when it comes to making somebody comfortable is asking them to expose any number of potentially embarrassing things going on in the background. It could be something as small as having a dog running around in the background and not being able to compose your thought. And just having an eye flitting across the screen 
maybe some way that you're indicating that your attention isn't there. But I don't think that's necessarily fair, especially to students who are trying to get a sense of identity as a learner. It's very possible to understand if somebody is present cognitively without seeing their eyes. So if it's a matter of getting somebody into a place mentally where they feel they're safe, they can learn, and they're heard, uh, I think it should be strongly considered whether camera on or camera off makes somebody more conducive to learning and focusing or less so. I just wanted to ask you that, Josh. I mean, just seems like common sense that it would be better for a teacher to be able to see the student. I mean, one of the big challenges with this distance learning is connecting with students. Sal Khan talks about pulling kids out of the screen so they're not just one of many. And not being able to see them seems to me may would make that more difficult. I think you're right that you have to engage all the senses here. And visual is one of the first ways we familiarize with others. If possible, I think it's a great practice to encourage students, especially at the beginning of class, to be able to turn on their cameras, switch to the gallery view, which is kind of that box by box by box model, and just get a feel for who's in the room, so to speak. The problem, I think, comes more with encouraging students or maybe even mandating students persist with that going into the lesson. The reason, and I think there's a fair amount of research at this point, towards this point, is that if you are forced to look at yourself, or even more so, forced to look at others who are considering how you look, that is cognitively draining. That's just the way that we're mapped out as human beings. So while it is tremendously important to connect visually with somebody, I think there should be a question in the mind is, what is the optimal point of connection? And then when are there maybe diminishing returns with that in a balance of keeping students focused and combating the Zoom fatigue that we feel? So what are the alternative ways for teachers then to engage with students? Lewis uh, mentioned maybe breakout rooms as one, but what are the other ways that teachers in a group can still find out whether students are listening and getting something from whatever's happening? That's the million dollar question. I think active learning in all its forms can be just tremendously advantageous. One example of this might be asking for students to do quick group work, as you've mentioned, or even take down an archive or an artifact of their thoughts as a group. You can set up the Google Doc, and the teacher can sit in the background just monitoring how these docs are being built out or, just as importantly, are not being built out. And that's maybe the point at which intervention is the best target for each of those groups, you don't want to spend time, if you're an in-class teacher, going to the groups that are moving along and momentum is good. You want to walk up to groups that are maybe having a bit of a stumbling block. And I think having physical evidence of that in the form of, let's say, a Google Doc or building a collective presentation in Google Slides can be a real-time indicator of, is this group on task and are they not on task? And another feature, I mean, it's, I think, and I'm discovering these features myself as we go along, uh, like polling. You can do these instant polls. That might be another way to engage students. That's right. There's a lot of interesting polling platforms out there. At my institution, we use Poll Everywhere. Not to say it's better or worse than others, but that's the choice we've made. And to my count, there are more than 30 different polling types. You know, I think one of the things we're learning are the opportunities that Zoom and these other platforms are presenting, and uh, the key is to take advantage of them. So thanks for joining with us today, Josh Weiss from Stanford's Graduate School of Education. That's a super interesting issue, John, and I know it's something that 
all of us have to deal with in these Zoom meetings, whether to keep our cameras on or off. So I'm sure many of you out there have opinions on that subject. Yeah, I feel for the kids, Lewis. Sometimes I'm at a Zoom meeting and I'm staring and I'm saying, boy, I would rather be somewhere else. So I get it, what the kids are going through. John, before I let you go, just wanted to ask you about the legislative session. There's less than a week to go before it ends. And what should we be looking out for? Well, there's one issue that's coming up that is related to what we're talking about, and it either will or it won't be resolved, and that's liability protection for school districts from being sued by parents and students who come to school with the coronavirus and allege they got it in school. The outcome of that discussion in the legislature and whether there's action may affect how quickly schools reopen. Yeah, because school districts may not want to risk bringing kids back if they know they could get sued on the topic, right? it may make them more skittish to do it. I think so. That's what the superintendents are saying. Okay, well, keep us posted on that, John. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Stay safe. Stay well. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week.